Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this afternoon or this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me, uh, I'm eager to preach, but let me first publicly thank Bob for his friendship and for his partnership in the gospel and for the invitation to be a part of this conference and to have the opportunity to proclaim to you the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I am grateful and excited to be able to be serving this morning with members from our worship team from back home and uh, to get a chance to sing together from the uh, new work that both teams have come together to lift up Christ. It's a joy to be here. If you take your copy of God's Word, I want to get down to business and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Would you indulge me by standing with me for the reading of God's Word? Let me pray, and then I want to read from our text up front, laying it as the foundation for everything I'll endeavor to say. And then you may be seated. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. We thank you for the privilege to gather together to worship him in spirit and in truth and for his blood and righteousness that opens for us a new and living way to you. We thank you for your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We pray now that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. I pray that you would help me to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And may Christ alone be exalted as the word is explained, we pray. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. the hymn of Christ. Philippians is called the epistle of joy. 
Paul mentions joy or rejoicing some 16 times in this letter. In fact, the tone of the letter is filled with joy. But Philippians is as much about Christian fellowship as it is about Christian joy. In a real sense, the bond Paul and the Philippians shared in Christ was a core reason why he was joyful in prison. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 read, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is spiritual leadership. Spiritual leaders crave spiritual unity. But how can we live in Christian oneness? In verses 3 and 4, Paul exhorts, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Gospel-minded Christians long for greater racial harmony in the church. And we wonder why we cannot get along better. Here we are reminded that the problem is not racial prejudice, it is spiritual pride. The key to unity is humility. We cannot come together until we get over ourselves. In our text, Paul shows us the only way to practice humility that fosters true unity is to look to Christ alone. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is called the hymn of Christ. Scholars tell us this passage records an actual hymn sung in worship by the early church. In verses 1 through 4, Paul issues a call to spiritual unity. The rest of the chapter gives four models of the humility needed for spiritual unity. Christ, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. The example of the Lord Jesus, which is first and foremost, is celebrated in this hymn of Christ. Verse 5 exhorts, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then verses 6 through 11 go on to explain the mindset of Christ. This explanation of the selfish, selfless humility of Christ spontaneously explains the glorious majesty of Christ. It is one of the most important Christological passages in the New Testament. It is a vital statement about the divine nature, redemptive work, and sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The text makes this statement about Christ in two parts. Consider them with me. 
First, there is the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, explain the humiliation of Christ by contrasting the eternal deity and the human life of the Lord Jesus. In verse 6, Paul begins by declaring that Jesus Christ is eternally God. The Bible clearly and consistently teaches that Jesus is God. The deity of Christ has been under constant attack in church history. In fact, other doctrines of Christ are attacked to undermine the deity of Christ. For instance, there are those who reject the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus, not because there is no credible evidence, but because to affirm the resurrection would be to acknowledge the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is constantly and vehemently attacked because it is essential to the historic Christian faith. Christianity is Christ, and Christ is God. So if you can undermine the deity of Christ and make him merely a good teacher or a great prophet, you render Christianity impotent. Our hope rests on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. The pre-incarnate Christ was God by nature. Verse 6 describes Christ as being in the form of God. This statement refers to the eternal nature of Christ before he came into the world as a human being. He was in the form of God. Form speaks of the internal reality of a thing expressed in its external appearance. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus in his pre-incarnate state was God by nature, but also God in his status. Verse 6 says, that he had equality with God. Meaning the pre-incarnate Christ shared the fullness of Christ's nature. Christ must never be placed in any category below or less than God. The Father and Christ mutually share the nature and authority and glory of deity. Jesus Christ is eternally God. Then he goes on to show us that this Jesus who was eternally God became fully human. Verse 6 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This term grasped here translates the Greek word used only here. In the New Testament it is it is a reference to plunder or prize or anything to be seized or greatly desired. Paul uses the term to speak of the attitude of Christ toward the perfect will and redemptive plan of God the Father. Every privilege of deity belonged to Christ because he is God. 
Yet he did not hold on to the glory of his deity like a robber clutching stolen loot. Christ, who had every reason to put his rights first, did not. He did not view his divine glory as something that must be held on to at all cost. And in verses 7 and 8, Paul affirms this humiliation of Christ in two ways, his incarnation and his crucifixion. Note first the incarnation of Christ. Verse 7 says that Christ made himself nothing taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Made himself nothing. It means to empty, make void, drain out, abase, neutralize. Christ, who by nature and status was God, made himself nothing when he came to earth as a human being. D. Campbell Morgan wrote, he was the God-man, not God indwelling man, of such there has been many, or not a man deified, of such there has been none save in the midst of pagan systems of thought, but God and man, combining in one personality, two natures, a perpetual enigma and mystery, baffling the possibilities of explanation. Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. Think about it. Christ, who in eternity rested on the bosom of the father without a mother, in time rested on the bosom of a mother without an earthly father. God, who in Eden's garden took from a man a motherless woman in Bethlehem's barn, took from a woman a fatherless man. Jesus, the ancient of days became the infant of days. A baby as old as his heavenly father, but ages older than his human mother, Mary. Jesus, who created the angels, was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus, who said, before Abraham was, I am, was born 2,000 years after Abraham died. This is what we call the doctrine of the kenosis. The word kenosis is derived from the verb translated made himself nothing in verse 7. The church formally stated this doctrine to defend this text against misinterpretation. It teaches the incarnation was not Christ emptying himself of his deity or exchanging his deity for humanity. The kenosis was a sovereign self-renunciation. In the kenosis cry, Christ laid aside his heavenly glory and the independent use of his divine prerogatives and eternal riches and favorable position with the Father. But never in the process did he ever stop being God. Godhead is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, if Christ stopped being God, God himself would cease to exist. This is impossible. God is self-existent and eternal and immutable. God could never stop being 
God. But in the kenosis, Christ became something in addition to being God without becoming something less than God. He became what he had not been in his eternal deity. He put on flesh. Verse 7 says he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ made himself nothing in the reality of the incarnation, but he also made himself nothing, church, in the role he adopted during the incarnation. A servant. The incarnation proves that the gospel is not something we would think up. It is inconceivable to our finite minds that God, who enjoyed eternal glory and infinite sovereignty and unlimited power, would take on the weakness and limitations of humanity. But even if we could come up with such an idea, we would have messed it up <laughs> by making God a human being with power, influence, wealth, fame, skill. This is not what God did. Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. One writer said it well, if we could just grasp the significance of the incarnation, the word sacrifice would disappear from our vocabulary. Aside, he threw his most divine array and hid his Godhead in a veil of clay. And in that garb did wondrous love display, restoring what he never took away. We see his humiliation in the incarnation and then further in his crucifixion. Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The death of Christ is mentioned twice in verse 8. These two statements describe both the submissive nature and sacrificial manner of his death. On one hand, the death of Christ was an act of submission. Verse 8 again says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You and I have a date with death that we have no control over. Diet, exercise, live right, but death remains imminent and inescapable. But that's not the way it happened with Christ. Death had no control over him. Death did not kill Jesus. He gave up his life freely and willingly and voluntarily. You remember him standing before Pilate? Pilate said, if, if there ever was a time to talk, you should talk now <laughs> and defend yourself because I have power over your life. Remember what Jesus said? Let's be clear about what's happening. You, you go on and do what you have to do, but let's be clear. You, you have no authority except what my Father gives you. No man takes my life. I lay it down. And the proof that I lay it down is when I get ready, I'll pick it up again. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The death of Christ was not the result of the plot of the religious leaders or the betrayal of Judas or the protest of the crowd or the sentence of the Roman government or the actions of Roman soldiers. Verse 8 tells us what happened. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We're talking, brothers and sisters, at this point, still about the humiliation of Christ, but consider here the glory. He could have declared his glory was too precious to disrobe for sinners. He could have declared his position was too high to condescend to sinners. He could have declared his power was too great to lay aside for sinners. He could have declared his heavenly possessions were too valuable to part with for sinners. He could have declared his blood was too good to shed for sinners. He could have declared his hands were too holy to be pierced by sinners. He could have declared his life was too sacred to sacrifice for sinners, but thank God he did not do that. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. It was an act of submission, but it was also an act of sacrifice. Crucifixion was the most painful form of execution in the ancient world. It was cruel and unusual punishment in which criminals were put to death by an extended process of suffo suffocation. Death by hanging or stoning or even burning was considered an act of mercy in comparison to crucifixion. A Latin term was even coined to describe the agony of the cross, excruciation. But this crucifixion of Christ is described here for us, not in terms of suffering, but of sacrifice. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That declares the totality of Christ's obedience. But then notice the extent of his obedience, even death on a cross. Earth has no darker sin, history, no blacker page, humanity, no fouler spot than that of the Savior's crucifixion. But consider, he did it for us, that our sins might be forgiven. God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is good news. But thank God it's not the end of the story. Amen. Consider with me, secondly, the exaltation of Christ. Verses 6 through 8 record the humiliation of Christ. Verses 9 through 11 record the exaltation of Christ. The two parts of this great hymn are connected by the first word of verse 9. Therefore, 
which signifies that what Paul is about to say is not just connected to, but based on what he just said. Verses 6 through 8 describe the humiliation of Christ in which he came to earth as a man, lived as a servant, and died on a cross. Verses 9 through 11 describe God the Father's sovereign response to the selfless humiliation of his only begotten Son. Verse 9 says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. If you end the story of Jesus at the crucifixion, you do not have the whole story. The cross is not the end of the story, for God highly exalted him. Highly exalted is emphatic in the original. It could be translated, God super exalted him. God lifted Christ above everything. God exalted Christ to the highest place. God raised Christ to a position of supreme majesty. The humiliation of Christ was fully compensated by God. But not just that. I want you to consider this. Not only was the humiliation of Christ fully compensated by God, it was totally reversed by God. Verse 6 says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 9 says God highly exalted him. Verse 7 says he made himself nothing. Verse 9 says God has given him the name above every name. Verse 7 says, he took the form of a servant. But verse 10 says, every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. But verse 11 says, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Jesus is no mere baby in a manger or great teacher or mighty prophet or miracle worker or religious martyr. We worship the exalted Christ who is eternally worthy of an exclusive name, sovereign lordship, and universal worship. In John 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus prayed. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God answered Jesus' prayer. The Father highly exalted Christ. Verses 9 through 11 record both the present reality and the future realization of the exaltation of Christ. Consider the present reality of Christ's exaltation. Verse 9, 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God exalted Christ. Christ did not exalt himself. And he was not and is not exalted by man. We sung of exalting Christ earlier. But in worship, we only acknowledge, affirm, and adore the exaltation of Christ. We don't accomplish it. God has already highly exalted him. It's a done deal. In fact, highly exalted is in a grammatical emphasis that means God exalted Christ once and for all. Jesus is the exalted Christ. And this is no esoteric idea. The exaltation of Christ is rooted in three concrete events. First, God exalted Christ through the resurrection. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the bedrock of the Christian faith. It is foundational because the resurrection was God's validation of the person and work of Christ. God stamped his approval on the humiliation of Christ by raising him from the dead. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33, Peter preaches. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Christ was exalted by God through the resurrection. Secondly, Christ was exalted through his ascension. That's Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I'm tempted to just read it. But let me just retell it. Jesus is talking to the fellas who still don't get it after he's been raised from the dead. And they want to know, now will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus entrusts his worldwide mission <laughs> to these men. But remember the scene? While he was talking, he was interrupted by angels. His ride showed up. <laughs> Hallelujah. And he was lifted up in the clouds. And the Bible says that as he went into the heaven, two men stood by them in white robes and said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken away from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This dramatic departure of the risen Christ marks again and in a greater way the end of the humiliation of Christ and his entrance into his exaltation. Christ was not only exalted from the grave, he was exalted over the earth. 
But see that reality, not just in his resurrection and ascension, but in his coronation. The coronation of Christ tells us where he went when he left planet Earth in the ascension. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 says that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In the resurrection, Christ was exalted over sin, death, and the grave. In the ascension, Christ was exalted over time and space. In the coronation, Christ was exalted over every name that is named. That's why verse 8 says, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What, what is this name that is above every name? That's the natural question of the conscientious reader. But to ask is to miss the point. The word name here does not refer to a title for Christ. The significance of the word name is found in the comparative phrase attached to it. It is the name that is above every name. This is a statement of the exalted office of infinite majesty, glory, power, dignity, and authority that Jesus Christ received from God the Father. This is not merely a statement about a proper name. It is a statement about a Glorious position of sovereign lordship. God has already highly exalted Christ once and for all. But it ain't over. There's a future realization of Christ's exaltation. That's verses 10 and 11 which explain the intended purpose and proper response to the exaltation of Christ. We see first that the Lordship of Christ, there's coming a day there are some in my congregation back home who are concerned that I don't spend more time, or that is time, talking about the current events of the day. It's not that the things that are going on in the culture around us are not relevant, but we'll never make sense of what's going on in the culture around us unless we see them from the perspective of an exalted Christ. Listen to what this text says. The text says, don't, don't worry about what they're saying on the news. There is coming a day when the Lordship of Christ will not be denied. Verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The bowing of the knee pictures submission and surrender, even slavery. Bowing the knee is the proper physical response to the exaltation of Christ. In our culture, when a dignity or celebrity enters a room, people stand, applaud, cheer, 
but if Christ were to walk into that same room, no one would stand. No one would be able to stand. <laughs> Every knee should bow before him. Note the extent of this mandated reverence for the exalted Christ. Every knee. Every knee means every knee. But Paul punctuates the point by outlining three places where the knee must bow to Christ in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The Lordship of Christ, that is, he is saying it's total and absolute and universal. The day is coming when the Lordship of Christ will not be denied. Every knee shall bow before Christ. The holy angels in heaven will bow before Christ. The glorified spirit of the redeemed will bow before Christ. The Christ followers on earth will bow before Christ. The unbelieving sinners in the world will bow before Christ. The devil, his demons, and the lost souls in hell will bow before Christ. Lordship of Christ will not be denied, and the lordship of Christ will not be debated. Verse 10 sees the physical response to the Lordship of Christ, but verse 11 hears the vocal response to the Lordship of Christ. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 10 emphasizes the scope of Christ's Lordship. Verse 11 emphasizes the sovereignty of it. Verse 11 states it in four words. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lordship of Christ is the initial confession of the church. Scholars tell us this confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, was the first Christian creed long before the church formally stated its convictions about the Trinity or justification and other key doctrines. It was clear about this essential truth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Likewise, the Lordship of Christ is the authentic confession of every Christian. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the Lordship of Christ, here we see, is the ultimate confession of all creation. Verse 11 declares, there is coming a day when every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not universalism. This passage is not teaching that every person will be saved. We are called to evangelize the lost because every person is not automatically or inevitably saved. Universalism and the Great Commission are mutually exclusive. We are commanded to make disciples of all the nations because there is no universal salvation for all people. But there will be a universal confession of the sovereign, sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. The primary message of this hymn is to the church. Humble yourselves and God will exalt you. He goes on to say in verses 12 and 13 this way, work out your own salvation, therefore with fear and trembling. But there's a secondary message here for the lost. 
Humble yourself that you may be saved. You sometimes ask, what is the world coming to? Philippians 2, 9 through 11 answers, the world is coming to a day where every being in the created universe will recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. No tongue will be silent, no knee will be unbowed. As we are in this age of grace, the promise of Romans 10, 9 still stands. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To acknowledge him now is to receive grace. To acknowledge him later is to suffer judgment. Now you may bow and confess, then you must bow and confess. Now it may be done in joy, then it will be done in terror. Today you can confess him as Lord and Savior, then it will only be as Lord. And if you have trusted, those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, have the wonderful privilege of participating in this future realization now. As we sing high praise to him, our tongues should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To God be the glory for the Lord Jesus Christ. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. Crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem. Crown him Lord of all. Hallelujah.